taxes. Uh, our New Testament reading is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And um, as you guys turn your Bibles there, this is a reminder that we are continuing through the book of Acts. And some of you may be petrified that there are 28 chapters of the book of Acts and through three or four weeks, we're only through two chapters. Uh, don't worry, it'll pick up a little bit, but um, we want to spend a lot of time, especially in these foundational parts at the beginning. And so uh, our New Testament reading today is actually going to be the tail end of what we read last week. And I'll explain why. And maybe you saw it with Exodus chapter or the Exodus passage about the commands of God to the people and the song we just sang. But our theme tonight is going to be about the church. What is the church? What are we doing together? So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It says, They, being the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, <clears throat> the church, what are we doing? Uh, well, so I could go back and forth on, on what the church is. Um, you know, one of the things as a pastor, it, all pastors sort of have this, this deep love for the church, but also sometimes this deep frustration for the church, right? This, you know, all the energy and effort we put in. And many of you know what I'm talking about. If you've been lifelong churchgoers, you sort of wrestle with this idea of church or maybe not even lifelong, maybe you've had a bad experience, or maybe there's been struggle in your life with the church, that this idea of church can sometimes be difficult for people. And I know I mentioned this passage last week, um, but as I said, we're going to be going through Acts here, and I think this is really, really important. Um, and it's important for me because I actually heard this passage preached um, some years ago in a way that really made me kind of wonder a few things. Um, I don't know if anyone else has ever heard this, but I remember hearing this passage taught sometimes and talked about how Christians, if we're really going to be like the first century church, that we sort of need to be in like a commune of some sort, or that we need to live this communal lifestyle all together and have no possessions. And, and maybe it was an American thing or a big idea when I was in college, but I just remember people looking at this and, and sort of promoting what we would call today a little bit of the, the poverty gospel that to be a true, true Christian, that we have to live in this way. Now, um, I, I wrestled with that for a while, and, and I, I, I wanted to really focus on this passage tonight to be clear about a few things. Um, that this is a wonderful example and a model for us for church, but it doesn't need to turn into like a monastic commune. You know, real church can be so many things. And and I don't think that we need to say that the church can only be one thing from this passage. Um, now, let me just say, too, if you are called to the monastic tradition or to communal living, that's great. There is nothing wrong with those things. But I also want to be clear that I don't want anyone to ever think that how we live 
or with what's happening in church is any better or any worse based on what we choose to do. So let's look at this passage, and I think you'll understand what I'm getting at here. Verse 42 says that back then they devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship, to sharing meals and prayer. And these are good things, right? We could talk about these sort of all day long, that these are good things that we should be doing, that we should be praying together, listening to the teaching of God, teachings of Christ, breaking bread together, sharing meals together as, as long as we're able, right? And these are great guidelines for the Christian life. I don't think there's any arguing that. And then Luke continues in verse 43 and says that the people were also amazed. So not just were the Christians doing this, but then they were going out and they were amazed at the wonders and the signs they were, they were doing. You know, signs often just talks about miracles through the Holy Spirit that point to God, right? That these, they were practicing wonderful things. We saw this in, in Acts 2, right, with Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming down and speaking in all these different tongues. Maybe it was the continuation of speaking in different languages. Maybe they were healing. It could have been anything. Um, and, and this also means that many miracles, as we'll see in Acts, are very supernatural in nature, right? Healings, prophecy. The things that were happening were, were amazing to people. And then he continues to talk about this church in verse 44 and says that in all of the believers... Thousands of them were together and had everything in common. And this is where things start to get a little tough, because if you remember, it just said that in the verse before that 3,000 people were added to their number on the day of Pentecost. And then he says here that um, they had everything in common and were living together. Now, this is where I sort of get away from the commune idea. Not that, again, there's nothing wrong with that if that's the choice that you choose to live. But clearly, this is not being a literal description, uh, because people still had possessions. People still owned homes. There was some place these people were meeting and eating together, right? Um, as far as we know, archaeologically, there was no giant building in Jerusalem devoted to the, the, the early Christians where they all lived in like a dormitory style of life. Um, you know, they, they still had things, but they shared things, and they were living together. So, so he's not actually saying here in verse 44 that they all lived in the same home, but rather that they lived and shared life together. And in fact, what this is doing is sort of mirroring a teaching in the book of Luke. See, Jesus, when he was teaching in Luke chapter 12, you can look this up later if you want. It's Luke chapter 12. He said in verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Verse 33 says, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail when no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in this teaching, Jesus doesn't say the same thing he says to the rich young ruler, which is sell everything. He says, sell your possessions and give them to the poor, if need be. Right? So in this time, it wasn't that people were selling everything but they were selling as people had need. They were giving things up as people had need. And that's what he says next in verse 45. To mirror this teaching of Jesus, we see that the early church, if people were in need and they needed resources to help them, they would sell their property. They would sell excess properties. They would sell other things they had to give to those people in need. Notice again, it does not say they would sell all their property to give to the poor. 
They still had to have somewhere to meet. They still had all of these other things. But it's important for us to see that they had no fear of hoarding possessions. They had no fear of gaining or losing because their treasure was in heaven to mirror Christ's teaching, right? So those who had much could give much. Those who had little probably weren't asked to give little or probably weren't asked to give what they had because those who had were willing to share, you see? And this is a message now for you and for me today, some 2000 years later. Because we learned this from a young age. So my son is two and a half years old and we're trying to teach him this magical word of sharing, right? Now we learn this from a young age, but we also rebel against this from a very young age. You're le- when you grow up, what do you learn and what are you taught? If you have two of something and your neighbor has one or none, Let's say none. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to share. I have two cookies. My friend has no cookies. I'm going to share a cookie. Just last night, we're trying to play. I'm trying to play with my son, and he has three trains. I have no trains. I asked if I could play with any of his trains, if he would like to share with me any of his trains. And his response was a very clear no. He collected them off the table and walked away because those were his trains. See, no one actually, I don't think, maybe. He learned it at the Kita. No one taught my son that. But from a young age, we all rebel against this idea. We all feel that we need to possess. We all feel that we need to cling to that which we have. This does not mean that the church gave everything away and lived in poverty. What it means is that those who were able gave and shared. Those who God had blessed with much then used those blessings to bless others. And and what's great here is that the scriptures actually don't say that it was only for the believers. Right? It says the word it uses was just anyone in need. That if there was someone in need, they would do what they could to help them. And additionally, that they were happy to do so. It says in verse 46 that they met together, they ate together, they worshiped, and they were happy about it. This wasn't a chore. This wasn't some begrudging thing. This was something that brought them joy. In verse 47, and everyone was praising God. Everyone was happy with what they had done and how they were living life. And so we see here that what the first Christians were focusing on were things that are really, really simple, but very difficult for us to do. They helped each other. They shared. They lived together. They prayed. They shared a meal. They stepped in and helped when they saw someone who needed help. And it's funny because so often today for us, when we think about what is the church, when we wonder what is the church, we need to know first, this defining thing that we see here in the passage of Acts is the first thing about these people that was talking about these believers was that they were Christians. Okay. Now we know the church is not a building, right? And so we need to just be reminded that the church is those of us who believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ who quite simply believe Jesus was who he said he was. And that is the first sort of entryway into what the church is. Now, some people don't like the word Christian because the church has done questionable things in history or Christians have done bad things in the name of God. Okay, fine. Some people like to say I'm a follower of Jesus. Fine. But either way, we are believers in the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles about Jesus. That's the first thing we need to know what the church is. It's just quite simply believers. 
And what that means then is that as the church, as believers, what we are called to do is trust in the teachings of Jesus the way the apostles did, pray, share meals, live together, and when there is need, do whatever we can to help. Right? This is what John says in, in, in 1 John. How can we say we are Christians or how can we say the love of God is in us if, if we see someone in need and do not help them? So for us to wonder, what is the church? Are we part of the church, whatever it is? We need to ask, can we devote ourselves to these things? As Christians, can we agree that this is what God is calling us to do? And we know that there's some hesitation, though, with this because it's not always easy. Because in the church, even though we know that the church is the body of believers, we know that in our head. But in reality, what's happening in the church now, 2,000 years later, among all these different groups who call themselves believers? What's happening in the world right now among this person who says they're a Christian and this person who says they're a Christian, if they're from different countries or if they're from <clears throat> a different side of the political spectrum? We have division. We have fighting. We are forgetting what matters most. And what we're doing ultimately is just forgetting all of these things that the church was based on and putting ourselves first. But friends, we need to remember that the church is a lot more than just you and I. We need to remember what scripture teaches as a whole. See, all of these early believers were in fact Jewish to start. And so I just want to point us really quickly here to how this started. I mentioned Exodus with Moses, but even before that, in Genesis 17, what does God say to Abraham? Genesis 17, verse 4, says, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. So right there, one of the things we realize is that God does not just want one nation. God wants Abraham to be the father of many nations. Right? Later, God tells Abraham he will bless all of his descendants. And eventually this will become Israel and Israel will grow and fall and grow and fall in this cycle of Israel's thing in the, in the Old Testament. And then this guy, Jesus, comes, as Luke tells us in the Gospel of Luke, and it helps clarify some things. It helps clarify some things that this, in fact, was for all people. And that though the nations are scattered, though many do not believe the story of God, if we look at all of Scripture, is not just his love for the Israelites or for Hebrews. The story of scripture is God's love for the whole world. And what happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 is that we see, in fact, this is true. That God began speaking through the apostles to people from all these nations. That it wasn't just Israel who had God's love, but all nations. And so when the disciples and the new believers all got together and shared life together, they were living out the very love of God, not just to those on the inside, but to everyone. Because what do we see? If we're talking about the whole scripture and what the church is, that's way, way back in Genesis when God makes a covenant with Abraham. We're just going to go ahead and make a big jump down now to Revelation. And Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's Revelation chapter 7. And so we see that this is actually the church. Coming together. All people. All nations. All tribes. Praising God together. Not creating divisiveness. Not creating disunity. But creating unity. And when I say things like this. Or I talk to people about us being more unified as the body of Christ. So many people tell me, well, it's just impossible. We're too far divided. Nations are too angry. People are too prideful. Let's just wait until heaven, right? Let's just wait until revelation. And then God will sort out the church and we'll all be together. But until then, let's just stay on our own sides here. It's just easier. It is easier. But as we're talking about all the scripture, let me remind you some other things God said. God said to the Israelites and all who followed him back then that I will dwell among you and I will be your God. Jesus said before he left, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, church, nothing has changed from God's heart and God's desire for his people. What the people were doing after Pentecost was just living out the desire of God to be with us again, to live life with us again. God wants to be with us. Remember Adam and Eve way back when, what were they doing? They were walking and talking with God in the garden. God wants us, his people from around the world to come together and dwell in his house with him forever. And Jesus came to continue this mission. The Holy Spirit came to give us the power to do these things. And we continue this in the world today. So when you think about the church, the church is not the building, of course. The the church is not people who agree with just your perspective or your background or your upbringing. We need to go out into the world and and first, let me just remind us, first, we need to be devoted to the teachings of Jesus, devoted to prayer, and devoted to sharing life together. But then the second thing I want to share is that this means that, that we're all on the same team, okay? And I know it's hard sometimes when we disagree, but let me just say this. We are on the same team, brothers and sisters. It, it doesn't mean as we'll see in Acts, as the story goes on, that they were always best friends. They weren't. It doesn't mean we have to sell all we own and live in a commune and and, and giant bunk beds. No, it doesn't mean that either. But it does mean that if we are believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and like the song saying that we rely on his grace and grace alone, that we are indeed on the same team. And this is why we have to do all we can to seek unity in the church, brothers and sisters. This is why there are few things that get me so riled up as division in the church. Most of you know, I am much more likely to cry than to get angry when I preach. If I start talking about divisions in the church, I will get angry. Because so many people have lived and died that we would know these truths in Acts chapter 2. So many people have given their life. Christ, chief among them, the one who had no sin, 
gave his life for us that we would find peace in this life together. Because when we live for Jesus and the way we see here in Acts chapter 2, when we live for Jesus, the world does not look at us with hate or condescension. How many of you sometimes are embarrassed to say you're a Christian? How many of you sometimes, you don't have to raise your hand, are embarrassed sometimes to, to, to tell people, oh, I'm, I'm part of church, or oh yeah, I read my Bible every day. Look at Acts chapter 2 again, if you still have your Bible open. Look at verse 47. When people live this way, what is the world's response? Enjoying the favor of all the people. Church, I really believe this. When we live this way, there's not going to be this ashamed feeling that we will be enjoying one another so much that the world will actually look at us with envy and favor. Not as stupid or ignorant or condescending. And so as we look at this passage, let me just sort of wrap up by saying one last thing. The first thing was this, is that we need to devote ourselves to the teaching of Jesus, prayer, meeting, and eating together. That's the first thing. The second thing is even though we are absolutely all individuals that we need to remember, we are on the same team. And the third thing, and this is the action point, this is the, the motivating thing for all of us to go forward with. How can we be on the same team with, all, with those people who we may disagree with, who say they're believers in Jesus, but really we don't agree with what they're saying or how they're living? We need to be more generous with one another. Those in Acts chapter 2 who gave things away, who ate together, showed amazing generosity. They showed generosity to people from around the world at Pentecost. And the generosity, as you read and continue in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, you see amazing generosity among believers in the church. And church, we, under, we know that we have to be generous with our blessings, right? We give and we tithe and I get that. And that's good. But we also have to be more, genera more generous in our relationships. We have to be more generous with people we disagree with. Too many Christians today are creating division in the church by saying theirs is the only way. I've talked about this before and I will talk about it again. We learn nothing when we're talking. We need to be people who ask questions. We need to be people who give generously and general, generous space within the church to say, tell me about your life. Tell me about your background. Tell me about your culture. Where do you come from? Why do you believe this way? I want to understand. We need to have generosity in all areas of our lives. And church, let me just reiterate this. It is great. It is good. We are called to have strong convictions. I am not saying we are called to be wishy-washy or not believe. But let me also say, how many of you in the last 10, 15, 20 years have changed your beliefs over time? How many of you have come to a new understanding or read something differently and thought, oh, wow, I might have been wrong before? <laughs> I know I have. Absolutely, I have. And so, church, hear me. It is great to have convictions. But we also are called to be generous with our brothers and sisters who disagree with us. See, I told you, I'm much more likely to get emotional rather than yell. Please, I'm asking you. In fact, I'm begging you. Let's be more generous with one another. Let's be more gracious with one another. Anyone who's in a marriage or has been married knows 
how harmful it can be in a relationship to need to be right all the time. Think about what this does to the church when we feel like we need to be right all the time and we're not generous with each other. We know we need to be devoted to the teachings of Jesus. We know we need to remember we're on the same time, same team. But the way we do this is by simply being more gracious and generous with one another. If there is one thing, even as a pastor, that I learned from this passage, it is that I need to be more generous with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, in Jesus Christ, we are not called to have enemies. No one is our enemy. And if scripture is to believed, then one day we will all be at the throne together. Revelation 7. Every nation, every tribe, all of us together, all wearing white robes, praising God together. And if that's the case, and that is where we're headed, why are we wasting our time and effort doing anything that would create division? Church, let us be generous with one another. We are called to be people who find favor in this world. Not because we are of the world, but because we are modeling Jesus Christ to this world. And just imagine, just look on Wikipedia. I'm not sure what the number is. 2.2 billion, 2.4 billion Christians on the world. Imagine if 2 billion people in the world right now were more generous and held the teachings of the apostles and prayed together and broke bread together and remembered and put the priority of Jesus first, how amazing that would be in this world. And so church, may we be people who live like this and may you and I learn to do this together. As we consider these things, I wanna invite you to respond. We're gonna have a song, uh, respond by thinking, respond by singing, respond however you like to what God is doing in your life and through these teachings. Uh, and so let's go ahead and, um, and worship together. Reaching out to those in darkness. 